This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome board folks. Dr. Charles Parker here one more time at Core Brain Journal, and we continue to bring you some of the most provocative and interesting guests. Today, Dr. Courtney Warren is going to talk about something that is completely ubiquitous with every single human being on the planet. And she's written a book called Honest Liars, The Psychology of Self-Deception. Dr. Warren's going to be talking about, I'm making it too simple, but she's going to be talking about denial. So, hey, Courtney, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Hi, Chuck. It's a pleasure. going to be a lot of fun. Let me introduce you to our, our listeners. Courtney is a retired associate professor of psychology at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. After earning her bachelor's degree at McAllister College in 2000, Courtney received her PhD in clinical psychology from Texas A&M University, and she completed her clinical internship at McLean Hospital at Harvard Medical School. She, as I mentioned before, a licensed clinical psychologist. She was a former tenured professor. She's a researcher. She's a mom. Get this, she's a fantasy football champion. She's a world traveler, and I love this. She's an author and seeker of truth. Hey, anybody that's here with us in Core Brain Journal is definitely chasing the truth. There's no question about it. So she has a TED Talk, and I'm going to have that TED Talk loaded on the show notes for you folks. I'll just pull it down and put it over there. And it's called Honest Liars, the Psychology of Self-Deception. Dr. Warren argues that self-deception is our biggest obstacle to life fulfillment. Yeah, and the pain is inevitable. So as such, Dr. Warren challenges audiences to improve their lives by looking within and changing the only thing that they do really have any control over, get this, themselves. All right, so with that, we're going to talk about, Dr. Warren, how did you get interested in this? I mean, it looks simple on the outside, but mm-hmm. I think it's extremely complicated point, and I'm really looking forward to hearing you. How did you get interested in that topic? I am so fascinated by human nature, by all of us, which really is the psychology of the general field of psychology is understanding people. And when I would work with students or patients or people in my own personal life, the number one reason that I saw people stay stuck was that they could not admit the truth to themselves about how they were contributing to how they got where they were. And until you can acknowledge who you are and how you got here, I actually can't help you to move forward. Oh my gosh. Long distance high five on that thought. Oh my gosh. I mean, isn't that true? Yes. Is there any piece of that that's not absolutely true? I mean, that is like, you know, I'm against reductionistic thinking. I'm reduction categorical, whatever. But that is an absolute always truth. And when you're trying to heal yourself, if you don't have any appreciation and self-honesty, I'll tell you one quick story. I didn't know we were going to get into this, but when I started psychoanalytic training back in Philadelphia, I had a very wonderful Talmudic scholar kind of supervisor. And we were talking about my first control case that I had in my psychoanalytic supervision. And he says, Dr. Parker, there's one thing that I want to ask you. Is this man capable of self 
awareness. <laughs> wow. And that was the, it was like, I don't know. You know, that's a good question, but that was the first question of my entire psychoanalytic training experience. Sorry to interrupt, but please go ahead. So you then, you must have had some experiences that caused some kind of a reaction on your part where, hey, I've got to get this squared away. How did that happen? Really what happened is that I was approached to give the TED Talk. And the people who were organizing the talk asked me, Courtney, if you were going to tell the public something important about psychology that could help them live a more meaningful life, what would you tell them and why? And I am a researcher. My specialty is severe mental illness, addiction, and eating pathology. And so it would have been very easy for me to give a talk on body image, eating disorders. It would be very easy for me to talk about addiction. But the truth is, if I'm talking to every human being, the lay community, anyone in the world who's interested in understanding themselves, what I want them to know is this. The more honest you are with yourself, the more meaningful your life will be because you will create the life that you need to live to make it meaningful. And until you can acknowledge that, you're going to be basically an automaton that goes through life in a fairly unconscious way and gets to the end and comes into my office and looks me in the face and says, oh my gosh, I missed out. What did I do with my life? How did I get here? I'm full of regret. I'm full of unhappiness. I'm full of symptoms that are really unpleasant. And I didn't even see it until now. And now it's really much harder for us to do anything about it. <laughs> it's so true. After all the water's gone over the dam, I thought you were going to say one of the things that hit me right there is I really don't know who I am. You know, mm -hmm. they don't have an internal identity. Yes. That too. So, well, I've been looking for myself and I haven't found myself. I'm here for you to find me. No. <laughs> I can't. I can help you I, and I will help you. That's such a lonely place. I actually think that regret is one of the most painful experiences we can have as humans because you can't change the past. You can only change the present. And if you look back on your life and you then see, oh my gosh, I knew better. I knew better and I didn't do anything about it. That's a really tough place to be because your lies will lead to some pretty miserable consequences. You can harm your relationships with your children. You can have really tough romantic relationships, many divorces. It is really, really painful when you have to seriously look yourself in the mirror and be accountable for how you contributed to pain in your life. Yeah, suicide was the only thing you didn't mention right there, and it was occurring to me everything you were talking about, because you know those people get backed up, yes. and they don't have any way out, and they have no answer, and they can't find the answer, and the frustration and the anger at themselves for not being able to figure it out is definitely suicidogenic, if it's a word. Absolutely. So, so then... You said, okay, I'm going to do this. So that would have been interesting. So when did you do the TED Talk? About three years ago, two or three years ago. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Then was and it was, TEDx. Where did you do it? It was, it was at UNLV, the United oh. University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where oh, I was yeah, a yeah. professor. That's fantastic, really. Yeah, and it was a lot of fun. It wasn't what I expected. It was so much harder than I expected to, oh, yeah. to do. <laughs> like 15 that. minutes. I mean, can you do it? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I can lecture for three hours before I can give a concise 15 minute talk. Let yeah. me tell you. 
Oh, I'm the same way. I tried to do a TED Talk. I had, I had somebody that I hooked up with in California to do a TED Talk. And the whole venue is completely crazy, you know, and I've practiced and worked on it for a long period of time. It did not work out because I had a crazy thing that happened. My lips swelled up right when I was getting, so I'm like, I can't do this video. But, but anyway, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's a very pressured situation, even if you're an accomplished public speaker, because almost every word has a, another level of meaning and so on. So do you also work as a consultant? You, you actually, it sounds like you're hooked up with institution recovery institutions as well. Yeah, I do a lot of consulting. One of the reasons I left academia, so I was a tenured professor and then I quit, which is not the traditional trajectory. (laughs) But one of my main motivations was to interact with the public more. Because in traditional academic settings, we really write for other academics, right? I, I mostly publish for other PhDs and MDs. And although that's very important in many ways, it takes so long to actually reach anyone who would really benefit in a public forum. Oh, yeah, so, that's so true. I started doing a lot more public speaking and consulting and being more available to bring really solid, theoretically grounded, empirically supported data-based research to the public in ways that is hopefully very translatable, where I can say, okay, you don't really need to understand Freud necessarily or Adler or even the CBT folks, but what I can do is translate for you what they said in lay terms that can help you change. That's my hope. You are my sister. Awesome. <laughs> We're on the same path. So much fun having you on board. So then you began to do that. So now who are you hooked up with right now? Do you do a, are you regularly involved with some particular recovery group or something like that? You know, I still teach the psychiatry residents at UNLV in the School mm-hmm. of Medicine, and I still do a lot of research for a lot of the eating disorder organizations, mm-hmm. in, including the American Psychological Association, our big kind of overarching American psych forum. And I write a blog for psychology today, which is free to anybody. And on my website, you can look at any of my blogs that are completely free that are really about fulfillment and honesty. So how can we look at ourselves more accurately and make the changes that we actually want to make? And it all starts with your story, actually, about your patient. It all starts with self-awareness. Because Self-deception, by definition, is an inability to acknowledge something that's true or a fundamental belief in something that's false, where you are stuck in this reality that objectively has no support, but you can't see outside of it, right? So well said. So the only way that I can help you start to do it differently, to see yourself differently, is to get you to look at yourself in an observational way, to start to develop more self-awareness, where you turn off the defenses, the denial, the rationalization, all of those ways that we protect ourselves, because we don't want to see the truth, especially if it's painful. I don't want to acknowledge that I'm jealous. I don't want to acknowledge that I'm angry because of my background and that's influencing my current marriage. I don't want to admit this stuff. So I'll create all kinds of alternate realities. But until I can get you to really be open to seeing your behavior, your thoughts, your identity as it exists in the world, I can't help you move forward. So we start with self-awareness. You have to start by not judging yourself 
looking in literally in the mirror and saying, what does my behavior say about me? What does this thought say about me? What does my emotional reaction to this situation actually say about me that I don't want to admit? You start there. So you start with the external, really. And, and instead of going deep into uh, you know, your childhood, it's like, what is going on here with the way you're handling this? Yes. It's as simple as that. And that will inherently take you to your childhood, which anybody <laughs> who's interested in psychology knows, right? Right. Because I can tell you this, the areas in which you lie to yourself the most are the areas in which you have the most unfinished business. They're the areas in which you are the most damaged, the most pained, the most insecure. And so anytime you notice that you're having self-deceptive tendencies in your current adult life, it will probably tie very closely to some early childhood learning that you experience that you are now replaying as an adult that you can't see. So true. So as you develop this awareness, then you have to get into the assessment. So I, I talk often about the three A's of authenticity. Awareness is the first. You have to develop more self-awareness. The second is assessment. It is doing that thorough evaluation of what this means about you to further understand who you really are. Because we often want to detach our behavior and our emotions from who we think we are. If you ask me, describe yourself, I'll give you all of this list of things that describes me. But if you look at my behavior, some of those things are probably not true that I just said to you. They might be true sometimes, but we're very, very complicated. So the second step is as you notice how you act and how you engage in the world and how you feel and who you think you are, where are you struggling? And the, the place I tell people to start the most is with emotion. Because the number one reason you're going to end up in my office is because you're emotionally struggling, right? People usually seek therapy mm -hmm. when they're emotionally challenged in some way. And so I would say, start there. Where do you have the strongest emotional reactions that cause you sadness, that cause you pain, that cause you discomfort? And pause. Now go deeper. Where does this come from? What does this remind you of? What early childhood learning did you have that is directly leading you to these behaviors as an adult? It fits with the recovery program. I mean, you're really talking about the first step and jumping to the fourth step yes. of recovery. So first of all is awareness. I mean, I'm having a problem that I'm not in control of. Yes. And then the fourth step is a, a fierce and moral I don't remember it exactly because of yes. the personal inventory. It I mean, is. You know, you got, that's an assessment. It is. So then what's number three on the A's? Three is action. Bingo. You actually have to do something. Because one thing that I will tell you, this is the ignorance is bliss quote in action, is that once you acknowledge something's true about yourself that you have been deceptive about, you actually have to do something about it. Because if you don't, it will psychologically hurt you more. So one thing that's really important to know for all of us is that we all lie to ourselves. Every single one of us lies to ourselves. It's actually incredibly protective. 
there isn't a mistake. It isn't even necessarily bad, quote unquote, in the sense that self-deception serves to protect you from information that you can't yet acknowledge because it's too hard. It's too painful. The problem with that is that over time, lying to yourself will have really problematic consequences for you. But the reason that it exists in us is to help us cope with life because life is really hard. We go through all kinds of challenging experiences. We all have pain. I bet every single listener out there could say to you, this was hard in my past. This is hard for me currently. We all experience hardship. Santa Barbara just had a massive fire followed by a massive mudslide that traumatized almost the entire city, right? We have experiences like this. And so your psyche wants to keep you functional. It wants yeah. to keep you whole. It wants to keep yeah. you okay. So it will help you lie to yourself. However, over time, that kind of lying will lead you to engage in behaviors that are consistent with lies as opposed to consistent with reality that you really want to be grounded in. And so as you acknowledge the truth, you have to change. You absolutely have to take action. You have to do something differently. If you say to me, I finally see that I married this person because I was attracted to people who are emotionally unavailable. And the reason that's attractive to me is that I grew up in a household where it was not okay to express your feelings honestly with each other. And so we all were very comfortable with a very non-intimate interaction. And you know what? As I grew, I picked men like that or women like that because it was really comfortable for me. But now I'm looking at my marriage. I'm looking at who I picked and I see that I picked him for a reason that is not consistent with the life that I want to live or the person that I want to be. So I have to change because if I stay married to this person now, I know better. And 10 years from now, I'm really going to regret it because I knew it. The self-deception won't function anymore for you. It's now in your conscious awareness. You have to do something differently. That's so well said. You know, there's a specific psychoanalytic principle there. And what happens is it's when you experience something passively as a child, there is a drive oftentimes to master it in the adult life. Mm -hmm. by repeating it so that you can fix the trauma. So it right. doesn't matter if the person's been in the situation, you were talking about an emotionally vacuous home situation, they're going to find and correct that person. And uh, the same thing with other issues like sexual abuse. So they're yes. going to like, okay, I've been this, now I'm going to master that. And, you know, of course, that leads to terrible consequences. So the way I'm thinking about this while you're talking just to amplify a little bit on percentages, I get a lot of mileage out of the percentage concept. The part that's working well, it could be 80%. And the person's going to protect that 80% by not paying attention to the 20%. But the problem with the 20%, as you go on down the road, you were saying this, I'm just saying it slightly differently, but the problem with the 20% is you actually become close with another human being. It's in your face, mm -hmm. as opposed to when you're not close and you're not dealing with intimacy or commitments or, or truth, you can dance in the 80%, but when that 20% roosts on your doorstep, then you're there again. And so and every relationship that's meaningful is going to be more in the direction of 100%. It's not going to be an 80% relationship. Yes. And so when you, it doesn't matter whether it's work or whether it's, you know, like our profession, working with people, 
you just can't abide that 20% and dance around it anymore because it will absolutely smack you in the face. Yes. And you'll have a moment where you'll be brought to your knees because you can't handle it anymore. And in your world and in my world, oftentimes those are the people who are going to show up in therapy, right? Because the mm -hmm. biggest predictor of change is what? Empirically? I Pain. bet you could guess. Misery. Uh Yes. <laughs> the biggest predictor of therapeutic change is misery. People change when they can't tolerate staying the same anymore. Anymore. That's true. But who wants to get to that point? Right. <laughs> Alyssa, who wants to go into it that deeply? I mean, we're all in pain a little bit, but yes. you want to like actually have it roost on your face? Yes. So I mean, let's hope that we can actually try to live conscious lives every day, little by mm -hmm. little, so that it isn't you come to these big holy moly, I have to change my whole life moments. Right. But maybe you say, wow, I really need to tweak this about myself. I really need to work on this about myself because I am passing my lies on to other people, which is a huge, huge problem in our relationships because you will live out what you believe to be true, even if it's a lie. And you will pass it on to everyone you encounter. And that's not great for you or for anybody around you. Yeah, I mean, and I take it. To, I take it to a bigger the, you know, the whole evolution of mankind. It has a certain entropic quality, where we're developmentally arrested with ourselves, with our relationships, and we encourage the entropic decline of the entire social network with mm -hmm. lies and deception. Mm -hmm. You know, questions occurred to me. We're going to take a little break here in a second, but a question occurs to me because with your experience, with you, you're such a great talker. I love listening to you and. And I really shouldn't even say talker because it uh, diminishes what you're doing. Your, your expression is so eloquent and so accurate and so useful. It has great utilitarian value because it's just so clear. I mean, I, that action point is a really, really good point. And I'd like to amplify on that when we get back. We're going to take a, a brief break here. Great. But one of the questions I'm going to ask when we get back is how does one professionally take this interesting awareness that you have about awareness, assessment, and action, and actually help that person go into the action principle that they have to take. I mean, that's, to me, kind of the essence of this entire understanding. It's what do you do to get well? How do you actually make that step? So in a minute, we'll be right back, and I'm going to ask you that question again. Great. Well, you folks already know that here at Core Brain Journal, we're on a mission to introduce you to resources that make significant contributions to the investigation of those predictable mind science applications. Our colleagues at DHA Lab Group provide a real difference with treatment options for people at every level, from first awareness of mind problems to those frustrating times when even well-informed treatment becomes surprisingly unpredictable. For my entire professional life, from psychoanalysis to brain scans, I've searched for, yes, improved predictability. The good news for all of us, from professionals to patients, remarkably effective research offers useful, cost-effective, organic options far beyond guesswork with psychiatric medications alone. DHA lab tests measure unbalanced biomedical details through easily available testing now available globally for a variety of molecular answers from, for example, methylation, copper, and cryptopyrrole challenges. Check in for more details at dhalab.com core. That's d-h-a-l-a-b.com. 
forward slash core. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for coming on board. I just love this conversation. It's a real privilege to talk to a person with the depth of experience and the insights that you have. And really, uh, you know, I've worked in addiction. I wrote a book called Deep Recovery years ago, 1992. And I just loved that whole experience because I was psychoanalytically trained and I got into dealing with addictive people. And they're like, hey, Parker, you just don't know what you're talking about. I mean, you know, this is great, but what, how do you actually work this system? You don't have a system. You know? So anyway, it was, it was a definite uh, awareness for me uh, where I had to see my own limitations. But how do you actually take that and how do you explain it even if you're teaching professionals? Yeah. How to take that action principle and how to make it even more operational than what we were talking about. Pain is a part of it, but then yes. sort of like how do you actually conceptualize and do those next steps? So let me give you an example. And I use a lot of personal examples and clinical examples, partly because I want to be sure that everyone out there understands that I am not immune to self-deception. I think it's so important that people don't feel talked down to when it comes to a topic like this, right? Because it can sound like I'm saying you're such a liar, but I'm not, which isn't true. What you have to do is, so starting with the self-awareness, I will give you an example personally that happened to me and that happens to many people. I had my first child. She was about two years old, let's say, and I was working very much full-time. And I came home from work and she said, I love Heike, who was her nanny at the time. Now, what do you think my internal reaction to that was? Pain. (gasps) Oh my gosh, my child just told me that she loves her nanny. Now, that is a trigger. That is that emotional reaction that I'm talking about. That's the first step is self-awareness. I'm having an emotional reaction. I have to pause. So the first thing I would tell you as a treatment provider or as a person out there is anytime you realize you're having an emotional reaction, pause, stop, say nothing, do nothing, pause, notice, take a deep breath. And then I have to really deliberately start the assessment process. What does my reaction say about me? What it says is, I am insecure. It says that I am worried because if I start looking at my thoughts, and as a therapist, there are many ways we could do this, right? I could go down a cognitive behavioral realm and have you write down your thoughts and then start analyzing those. I could have you do some emotion processing. You can go down that dynamic route and understand where this is coming from, from a family systems background. But I would say my thoughts are that my child loves somebody else and she doesn't love me. Is that true? No. No. No right? But in my mind, that's what my reaction is based on. It's based in a lie, which is that my child saying she loves somebody else means she doesn't love me. And furthermore, if I now have a reaction that somehow shows her, it's not okay for you to love somebody else, what am I teaching my child? I am passing down a lie that is going to teach her, A, it's not okay to love other people, which is certainly not a truth I want her to learn. Mm -hmm. Or even worse, that if she does love somebody else, she shouldn't tell her mom about it, which is a terrible thing to teach her. Yeah. You're perpetuating the dynamic. No question about it. So after you, you, in that moment, you have the reaction, you do a little self-assessment to the degree that you can, and maybe you circle back to it later with your therapist when you say, wow, I really need to process this because I didn't even realize I had that in me. 
Then it's action. Okay, how am I going to handle this? What is the message I want to give? And the message I want to give to my child is, wow, honey, I am so happy you love her. Because as a parent, what more would I want for my child than to leave her with someone that she feels safe with and likes, right? That is the process. You do it every single day with every single interaction that you have. And that's the journey that we're on. It never ends. It's a lifelong journey because I promise you, the minute you think you know yourself and the minute you think you have it all together is the minute the universe is going to give you some really interesting experience that's going to show you that you have some more learning to do. So it doesn't end. You do that every day. And over time, the beauty of this is that psychologically you get stronger. So you won't have the same reactions in a month as you did today, because you will see it in yourself before it even happens. You'll say, wow, I know I'm insecure in this area and I am actively practicing challenging my thinking or behaviorally reacting in ways that feel completely awkward because it's not my tendency, but I'm going to do it anyway, right? Mm -hmm. And it gets so much easier because really, truly self-deception is coming from insecurity. It's coming from an inability to be honest. The more honest you are with yourself, even if it's bad, even if it's something you don't want to acknowledge, will leave you stronger. Because someday someone will be able to accuse you of something really bad. Like they say, you know, you're so mean or you're so jealous. And you'll be able to say, wow, tell me more about that. What makes you think that? What do I do around you that leads you to say that to me. And it doesn't cost you anything because the possibility that it's true doesn't have a knife in your heart. It has a, wow, maybe I am like that. I really should think about that. And if I am like that, I would like to do something about it. And you get stronger and stronger and stronger over the course of time. And eventually you're going to be the person that you want to be right? Which doesn't mean it's finished. You're going to keep growing, but you're going to be in that state of, I'm okay. And Mm. I'm not ideal. And I have plenty of faults, but I know what a lot of them are. And when people give me feedback about them now, or when I have a reaction, or when when I'm in a difficult moment, I'm so much better able at managing it in ways that still leave me intact and feeling good about who I am. And self-reliant. Basically, yes. self-management is built on balanced self-reliance. And the self-reliance comes from, it's going to be okay for me to actually set a limit when a limit needs to be set. I liked what you said before the break when we started talking. I mean, I like everything you're saying, to tell you the truth. But this particular point, I was thinking about the beforehand because you covered both sides of the equation, which I think is so absolutely essential. A lot of people think about it from you were just pointing out a situation where you were taking an awareness from a kind of an inferiority awareness. But we see so often in politics where people take a superiority awareness. Yes. I am so much smarter than you. I'm going to go ahead and tell you a story here that's going to work for me. I hope it works for you. Yes. Not that we've heard anything like that recently. And and the person is going to be completely found out one way or another. Yes. And they continue to go around talking about these things as if they're actually true. 
and the credibility just keeps going further and further down the drain. Yes. And they're, they're destroying themselves publicly on a regular yeah. basis because they haven't actually come back to say, what would be humble, balanced remarks in this situation where I might actually take a position that I don't know what the hell I'm talking about? So both sides of the equation and balance is an absolutely essential point in that. And you, you were saying it so well. I just thought I'd introduce that, that word yes. because you can go both ways with it. What I've seen with individuals who are in recovery, and you, you know this, because you're so strong on this whole point, frequently the model that you were talking about there is an individual who comes in and with more of a victim role. They are yes. being hurt and somehow it's going to be bad and I really am not competent to deal with things. That's excessive, but I'm, that's one side of it. And frequently when they start getting better, they flip over into the I'm omnipotent. I'm not going to take this anymore and it's okay for me to be disrespectful. Mm-hmm. And they get over into the paradoxical counterpoint to that, where they then pass along the pathology by being imperious, dogmatic, and uh, too controlling. I don't, I'm sure you've seen that. Absolutely. And in any personality disposition, there are going to be traits towards certain kinds of self-deception. And in, in anyone who's a little narcissistic, which is somewhat of what you're describing, where you have this, I'm the best, I can do anything, I am all powerful now. Uh, there's a lot of lying in there. And for someone with that tendency, at some point, they're going to really be miserable, but they're also going to create a lot of misery for everybody around them. And that's going to be rough for all of us who are watching. <laughs> <laughs> it's embarrassing. I mean, it's plain old embarrassing because the thing that's embarrassing is not so much for that particular person. I think we probably know who we're talking about, but What's embarrassing for me is the grand group of people who accept all that stuff that are really part of our society. I feel so, they're looking for answers. They don't have an answer. This guy is going to be an answer because he's so black and white. Mm -hmm. And really, I just want to get my mind free from all this confusion, which is what you were talking about just a moment ago. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to not be confused. I'm not going to seek balance because that's really too complicated. Yes. I'm just going to go for the black and white reductionistic categorical thinking. You know, one of the things you would be interested in, one of my favorite books, I'm going to mention it to you real quickly because it has to do with uh, denial and categorical thinking, is Alfred Korsybski's book, The Science and Sanity, mm-hmm. An Introduction to the Field Theory of, uh, pardon me, An Introduction to Non-Aristotelian Systems in General Semantics. I don't know if you've heard about that. You know, I don't know that book. Oh, you're going to love it. Sounds it sounds like Beck's work it, and it, so it many is. of the famous CBT folks. It's so funny because he talks like it's an introduction to non-Aristotelian systems, but it's a systems theory book, and it's not an introduction. This is a tome, okay? <laughs> and what he does is he gets into physics and particle physics and how it works with language and how we as human beings want to think reductionistically, how we're drawn to the simplification and the reptilian concept and yes. how we don't want to deal with the complexity. And really, it doesn't matter whether you're on the victim side or the Lone Ranger hot dog side. Either one of those sides is just, I'm not going to deal with the complexity. I'm going to be this way and it's going to be okay, which is that 20% of denial, which is where they're going to have the pain, which is what you were talking about. And you know, to make it a little bit more personal for the public, that tendency, not in the person we're talking about, but in, in the general public, I see it in college students right now all the time. And I also see it in business owners who are doing startups. Not that they're necessarily 
narcissistic or think they're the best, but oftentimes have a very inaccurate expectation about how easy it is to grow a business or what kind of work they're going to get when they graduate from college for the college mm-hmm. students. So they kind of have this idea that, well, if I do well in school, then I'm going to get out and I'm going to get a $100,000 a year salaried position somewhere. And I'm kind of looking at them going, I'm not sure you have an accurate representation of, of how the world is actually. And that's going to be a really hard learning experience. Similarly, in small business startups, you know, there's so much dreaming and you need that. You need that passion and creativity and interest. But to think that because you have a good product, it's going to succeed immediately mm-hmm. is a lie. Because so, they don't want to enter the process of that human connection. They actually, uh, they have an idea and the idea is in that 80%. Mm-hmm. But when you actually deal with people and interactions and whether you're selling cars or building a business, it doesn't matter. That 10, 20% is going to, haunt you if you don't have a way to handle that particular part. And you said that so well, actually, when you were saying that, I was thinking about physicians, because I think physicians can be in a state of non-recovery for their entire professional lives. And, you know, it's not a small business. It's a big business. It's working with other human beings, but they plant their flag on this is who I am. Yeah. And I know something about this. And they, they're not aware of it. This is not disrespectful to all physicians by any means. I'm not everybody's this way. But I've seen a number of individuals who are really troubled as professionals who have earned the stripes to say what they want to say, mm-hmm. but don't have an awareness of the process of how they're actually affecting human beings mm-hmm. by saying what they want to say. So that's such a good point. I wrote a blog recently about this, that there is a huge difference between being honest with yourself and telling people the truth. And so many people confuse the two by thinking that if I'm going to be honest with you, it means that I get to say whatever I want, whatever I think to you as it emerges. Right, right. So That is not self-honesty, nor is it even helpful to relationships. (laughs) It's disrespectful. Um, Right? So when people say, I'm just being honest with you, anytime somebody says that to you, just pause. (laughs) (laughs) Don't don't pack a weapon when you hear that because it's easy to have an immediate reaction to that one. Yes. So I'm just going to tell you all these very, my own perceptions of you as a person. I'm going to tell, I'm going to take the liberty of telling you these personal things without having checked out your interest in any of these things. And of course, they are my limited perceptions, but as far as I'm concerned, they are real and important perceptions, and I'm just doing this to help you out. That's a typical Lone Ranger position. Thank you. I'm smart, and you're stupid. I'm going to have to correct you. And if I correct you, now what's going on in that, in the background of that is if, if I correct you, you will be beholden to me, and if I correct you and make you beholden to me, I can have you do what I want you to do. Because you feel so guilty because you were so inferior and I had to work so hard to correct you. Now you'll come back for more. And what's surprisingly true about that in the human condition, you know, it painfully works too often. So anyway, I got to get carried away with that point. But I've been so interested in that point of balance and human perceptions and the Lone Ranger and then the helpless victim side. The helpless victim side is like, you're right, I'm wrong. And the Lone Ranger says, I'm right, you're wrong. And both of them have guilt as an operant underlying. They're going to like, I'm just going to work you. And thank you. That's yeah. a totally yes. interesting point. Now, you know, we could talk longer. I'm 
looking at the time here a little bit. You were about ready to say something. I would do. Do you have some concluding remarks there? Because I don't want to cut you off. I'm a little carried away in answering. No. What occurred to me when you were just talking is that so much of our lives are spent pointing at other people. And one of the biggest take-home messages that I have for people really truly is the only thing you ultimately have control over is yourself. It is the only thing you can change. Mm -hmm. And so if if you're in a relationship that isn't great, if you're struggling in some way, it doesn't mean that those things aren't objectively hard, right? Again, we all live through some really, really painful realities. But what I will say to you is that much of the time, you can't control them. The only thing you can do is say, this is the reality of my life right now. So how am I going to handle this differently? Who do I want to be? How am I going to come out of this with my head still high, Mm -hmm. feeling okay about who I am? And when you're talking about the Lone Ranger, when you're talking about anybody who wants to control somebody else, if I could just change you, then I'll feel better. If I could just get a new job, if I just lost five pounds, if I did blah, 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 then I'd feel better. It's never going to work. Not ever. It's not ever going to work. There's always going to be something else. Stop looking outside and start looking at yourself and figuring out what you can do differently to create the most meaningful life for you. Because you only have one. You don't get two. So make it count. You're the only person who can know what you need to do in this life to live without regret when it's over. So do it. Totally agree with you. I think the only little tweak to that, I mean, you're saying it so articulately, I don't want to contaminate it with my own thoughts because it's so beautiful. But the lesson, it sounds so hokey in a way uh, and so uh, trite. But the issue is, if a person's in pain, you said this, I'm just saying it slightly differently. If a person's in pain and they're coming back to themselves, then the cognitive reaction as a response to the emotional, emotionally being disconcerted is what's the lesson? That takes a little bit away from who I am with myself. It's like, what's the larger lesson here? What would I say to somebody else who's going through this? How, how can I understand it at a different level? If you're on a lesson plan, which obviously you are, and I certainly am, over our lifetimes, I've had to correct myself far too many times. <laughs> you know, but I'm not. I'm not regretful because it's worked out all right. You know, and I still. Yes. More, I still have some more work to do. I'm totally straight with that. But the bottom line is, the more you take a lesson plan, then it winds up just being an education. You get a chance yes. to go on this ride, and you're going to learn some, and you're going to learn some from people that you really had no idea that you were going to learn from. You thought it was going to work out okay. And by the way, it didn't. And there you go. That's the way it happens. Absolutely. And pain is not bad. It's just information. It's information for you to learn about yourself and to learn about the world around you and decide how you want to be and what you need to do. I mean, it really, really is. And the more you can integrate that as your life plan, the better you're going to be. Because we're all going to make mistakes. This is as good as it gets. As good as it gets is you take the information you have today as honestly as possible and make choices consistent with that information. Now, in five years, that information might be different. And you might look back and say, you know what? That was a mistake. But at the time, I didn't know that. If you can say that to me, you're doing just fine. 
So true. The problem is when you say that to me and you look back and you go, I knew it was a terrible decision and I did it anyway. <laughs> That's when you're going to have the regret. That's <laughs> the pain mm-hmm. is when you have to look yourself in the face and say, I knew better. And I, I just wasn't willing to change. I, I wasn't didn't. willing to take action. I wasn't willing. It was too hard. You're going to have to live with that. That's not a reality you want to live with, I guarantee you. Dr. Courtney Warren, so completely well said. I mean, in a very short period of time, we've summarized so much of the human condition. It's just doggone amazing. How can people get in touch with you to perpetuate this conversation down the road? Please. My website is choosehonesty.com. C-H-O-O-S-E, choosehonesty.com. And my email is drwarren at choosehonesty.com. You're welcome to email me. You can sign up for my blog, which is free on my website or on Psychology Today. My blog for Psychology Today is called The Naked Truth. Love it. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on board. You know, if you have some other ideas about something we need to talk about, We would love to have you back. You're just a delightful conversationalist, and it's been so interesting for me personally, and I know for a a lot of other folks out there. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chuck. I hope we can do that. We will. Pleasure. Talk to you, Courtney. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Cobrain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive, misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications, like those written for ADHD, are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.